I'd learned about how to systemize to with um again I went over to the States and worked with a company called Six Division and and understood systemization so you seal all the cracks and people think that that if you have really rigid robust systemization with checklists and automation etc that you turn your staff into robots just the opposite of that it makes your staff these creative wonderful people that now don't have all that crap to think about and they can now operate at their best creative selves run experiments drive the business forward be entrepreneurs and and that was what we we, we created Welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. My name is John Warlow. Today on the show, I think we will deliver against our promise because we have James Ashford. James is based in England, Yorkshireman, as he will tell you, and he built his company to one and a half million pounds in turnover and sold it in a healthy eight-figure exit. Before we get to James, just a couple of reminders. The show notes for today's episode can be found at builttosell.com. There you're going to find references to everything James talks about on the show, as well as some definitions from some of the lingo and acronyms we use that might be helpful as you approach this conversation. The second thing I want to mention is that James references systems and the importance of systems for building a built-to-sell company. And if systems are something that you're interested in developing and implementing in your company, we've developed a free ebook for how to do that. You can simply go to builttosell.com slash SOP. Again, that's builttosell.com slash SOP, where you'll find our definitive guide for creating standard operating procedures. All right. Let's get back to James Ashford. What a great story. In fact, it was so good that our interview went more than two hours, way too long for a single episode. So we've decided to break it up into two. In this first installment, we're going to hear everything that James did to build Go Proposal, his company, into a sellable company. So he'll talk about um, you know, the things that he structured in his company to make it work without him, how he built the successful business without risking his marriage, which was at jeopardy at one point in his journey, how to shorten your sales cycle, how to stimulate creativity among your employees without necessarily giving them handcuffs and making them feel like robots, Uh, how to leverage social media without necessarily becoming the only rainmaker in your company and only pitch person for your company. Also, how to amplify your leverage in a negotiation to sell your company. Here to tell you the entire story is James Ashford. James Ashford, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great. Thanks for having me, John. It's uh, it's great to have you. I had a chance to learn a little bit about your story before we hit record, and I would love to go back to the marketing company that you had because I understand it did not end well. No, talk about that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I'd always wanted to set up a business. I'm not quite sure where that came from. Uh, I think maybe see my parents work very hard in jobs for companies and kind of maybe not be treated right and not work the hours uh, that as a child I wanted my parents working, you know, and seeing people around me with the businesses who seem to be happier and drive nicer cars and live better lives, seemingly. Like I I wasn't 
I'm not from a bad background. You know, I had things I was good, I was comfortable. Uh, but I think that was where the, the passion came from. And uh, always wanted to set up a business, tried many different things, probably like 50 different things from being a, a close-up magician and setting up an online magic course to designing a toilet to every possible thing you can think of, right? <laughs> and then eventually, through necessity, um, uh, been made redundant twice during the kind of 2007, 2008 recession and child on the way, need to set up a business. And so thought this would be the way that I'd make a load of cash and have a load of time. And the opposite was true. And so set up a marketing agency, um, uh, frantically learned as much as I could about business. I, I had some good understanding, I guess, of systemizing processes and various things. Um, but it, whilst it was a successful business in, in many ways, and we, we delivered a lot of great value to our clients, I became fairly distracted and, and uh, on, on other potential business opportunities, I guess, I was spread too thin. And Shiny what, ball syndrome. All that, you know, <laughs> and n n failed to implement a full finance function in that business. So I was acting on kind of 18-month-old data, making financial decisions based on gut instinct, not really having a clear direction that I was going in and kind of when somebody kind of came into the business and lifted my blindfold off, we were kind of on the edge of a cliff that I'd not realized and tried to backpedal as frantically as I could and, and failed to do so. When you say failed, I mean, what was the final moment in the business? I mean, did you shut it down? Did you not make payroll? Like, how, how did you know when it, you'd failed? Yes, yeah, so I knew that I made sure the staff were paid up and, and I, I, I knew what was happening. And also I'd kind of fallen out of love with the business as well. So I kind of thought I was going to go on to do something else and that didn't work out either. Um, but, um, the, the business was liquidated in the end. So, um, you know, I managed to find a good home for the clients. I managed to make sure the staff were okay. And I managed to try and secure them jobs and help them to get set up afterwards as well. So I could see it happening. And, you know, I'm from a small Northern town in England, like you've got to kind of people, people talk, right? So, uh, the, I owed a few suppliers some cash. And when I started my next business, I made sure I paid them all back. Like I, hmm. I, uh, I kind of leveled everything off, but you know, the difficulty was going back to my wife and saying I've messed up, you know, and, and mistakenly taking some loans out against the house. We had to remortgage the house, affected the marriage, sitting in front of your staff and having to let them go, despite the fact that they've, you know, supported you in growing the business for all that time, very difficult and, um, and not something I wanted to repeat. How much were you into the house for? Like, how much had you pledged against the house? How much debt had yeah, you taken on with the house as the... Probably like 10 grand on like a 170 grand house. So probably not like a, a ton of cash, but when things are tight, you know, like just a few grand is is difficult, you know. What was your, rea what was your wife's reaction to learn that you had a 10,000 pound loan against the house that you hadn't disclosed yeah there was a, a lot sh sh she wasn't aware of with the business and i think this is a really important thing and one thing that we certainly corrected with the next business you know as an entrepreneur you you're out there kind of fighting the good fight trying to do what you think's right for your family and you just assume and trust that everyone knows that you're doing things for the right reasons but they're not sure why you're working ridiculous hours or when you are back at home that they're staring at a little glowing apple on the back of a computer, you know, most nights. And so just n no alignment at all, really, John, no idea why we're doing it, um, where we're heading with it. 
And so, yeah, that was one part of the difficulties, but lots of difficulties as well. And like I say, we, in a very interesting way, corrected that with the next business. Yeah, I want to get to that, but I'd love to know specifically, like, where were you when you told her? Like, did she throw a plate at you? Did she, like, what What was her reaction? Yeah, me into I, I, that. I, don't, I don't think, I can't remember one big moment. It was just a slow, corrosive process as just like mm -hmm. one thing fell and then the next thing and then the next thing. Um, I, th I think she's always trusted me. I'm fairly resilient and, have, you know, I've never not provided for the family despite the fact that I've never, I guess, not had much conventional stability in the past. I've always found a way, you know, so I think deep down she always always trusted that. Um, I had another business that I was going to be moving forward with that I'd already been building at the same time, and, and that was a bit of a distraction. But once I, I made the decision to close this business, within a couple of days, I realized that that other business also, my heart wasn't in it. It wasn't my company. It was, I'd given two years to that company as well, got paid nothing from it. And th there's a phrase I learned when I set my new business, which is just because you can do something doesn't mean say you should do something. <laughs> and I was doing lots of different things, believing that they were all right, and, and they weren't. none of them were. What gave you the confidence to continue? Here you are in your own admission, you had 50 businesses that had, you know, like toilets and magic. And now you've got this marketing agency that's, that's failed a couple of days later. And like a lot of people would be like, maybe I should look at the writing on the wall here. <laughs> maybe, you know, like maybe this whole entrepreneurship thing isn't for me. Yeah. I mean, uh, did you ever contemplate maybe just getting a job? I'd had jobs in the past. I've had many jobs as well. So I've never kind of really exposed us to, to too much risk while I was growing, while I was attempting that. I did with that business. But w with all the other ideas, I, I always had a job and I was kind of trying something here. So I was always making sure that we were kind of secure. So yeah, so they were sort of side hustles in effect. Yeah, all, all side hustles. And, and that was the first full committed, I'm all in on this business, right? Yeah. Um, and so... It's the only option I ever had from a young person. I always believed I could do it. I, I didn't feel I was far off. When the liquidators came in, they said it was such a shame because you had so much right. And that was my encouraging thing. Like, it, it, you don't have to be 100 degrees off. You can be two degrees out. And then two degrees over time, compounded, unchecked, takes you miles away from where you need to be, right? And so I didn't, although it didn't end well, I felt it was kind of, there were incremental adjustments I could make moving forward. And also through that process, I'd had privileged access to MDs and CEOs because I was doing their marketing for them, right? And these were some, we managed to land some big projects, tens of millions of uh, revenue companies. And so I got to see the inner workings of these companies and where, and so I learned so much. It was it was such a rich learning experience as well. Um, and I felt that with a few tweaks, I could crack this, you know. And so after that, once it all happened, I just went into study mode. I just devoured every book. I went on every course. I did Tony Robbins' business mastery course and consumed everything I possibly could. And I thought, I'm going to make this work. Where does it go from there? And I'd particularly love to hear how Go Proposal came about yeah. out of the ashes of all of this learning. Sure. 
So I became fascinated with what what connects businesses, what makes them all the same. Like not everyone thinks their business is unique and that mine's special because of the service I provide or the location I'm in or whatever, right? But they're all the same. Like you've got to get some customers, give some value and get paid for it. Like so I became really interested in what what are the things that connect the businesses and how can we develop models to make it successful. And you know, I love all start with why and all Simon Sinek stuff and all that type of stuff. It's beautiful, right? I get it. But at the end of the day, the primary function of a business is to make money. And if you don't do that, you're never going to fulfill your why. So I became fascinated with what makes a business make money. There's only two things you can do to make money in a business, which is get more customers or give more value to the customers you've already got. And I just was starting to break these simple things down. And and what I started to identify was that what what people really struggle with is the sale in a business. And, you know, we, we avoid sales because we've had such, everyone's had such terrible experiences of salespeople. We don't even call our team salespeople. We call them business development managers or something, right? But it's in true. that sale, no value can be given unless a sale happens. And it's in that interaction there where businesses overpromise, you know, they give discounts, they don't charge enough. And if you can just fix that, it solves 90% of the rest of the problems in the business. Like the reason why you can't recruit the staff that you want is because you're not making enough money. The reason why you can't market to the level you want, you're not making enough money. Let's fix that. So I started to, to do that with businesses that trusted me. And there was a local uh, football club, uh, football academy for, for kids near us that was doing like 75 grand a year. And I just started working with them. And I fixed that one thing. And within 18 months, they were making three quarters of a million pound a year, right? And then I started to, all these ideas, all this learning, I helped them to build a franchisable model in their business. They're now, even despite through COVID, they're now the fastest growing sports franchise in the UK, right? So I had this privileged access of, of, of a playground effectively, John. So they were paying me as a business consultant. I'm a, I'm a creative myself. So I'm able to think laterally with these businesses and all these ideas I was able to implement and see the, the effects of them. Awesome. So how does that consultancy turn into a software company? Sure. So I, I kept working with different businesses and it was nearly always the same challenge of how do we fix this, this sales piece? How do, we, how do we solve this? There were other things I started to learn about as well, about how do we create a great culture and great values? How do we systemize, you know, not only systemize to scale, but systemize to create incredible experiences. So I started being really fascinated with all of these things. And then through a mastermind event I was at, I met an accountant. And uh, I, I went to see him and uh, I said, look, let me just review your, your sales process and see if I can improve it. He says, we're one of the best around at this. Like we've, we've invested a lot of time in this. I said, it's cool. Let me just go through it. And I went through it and I said, this can be so much better. He says, yeah, but we're better than the other accountants. I said, no, but I'm not comparing you to them. I'm comparing you to Uber and to Amazon and to, you know, anything I want to compare you to, right? Whether you think that's fair or not. So I implemented what I'd been implemented in many other businesses up until this point. We implemented a sales system to allow him to be able to sit with a client and collaboratively agree the fees whilst they're with them, right? Everyone tries to do it after the fact. I'll send you a proposal over by close of play Friday. No, no, let's do the sure. deal now, right? Let's get it done. So I implemented the system and I said, not only will you be able to close deals during the meeting, you, you'll, you'll never discount again. The client will understand what you, you're getting from them, you, what they're getting from you. You'll bring them on the journey. And also you've got 13 staff. 
why should you be the bottleneck? Let's empower your most junior member of staff to be able to price and sell your you know, most complex services to your most complex client. Like my analogy with that is if you go to a restaurant, like every waiter and waitress can sell you and your family the most complicated meal you can come up with. They don't need to go and consult with a chef. They've got a menu. They can sell it, right? So we implemented this into that business. Didn't think anything more of it. I called it the five-minute proposal tool, and it was done. And he said to me, he says, James, I don't understand how you're not a millionaire yet. And I said, I know, it's doing my head in as well. He said, you're either full of, I can't say that word on this, I don't think I can swear on this call, can I? You're either full of Sure, you can say whatever you want, James. Well, you're either full of shit and I've not figured it out yet, he said, or you've not stayed focused on one thing for long enough. And I said, I hope it's the latter. A week later, somebody heard about what we'd done for this accountancy firm, another accountancy firm, over the pence. This was in Lancashire. The other firm was in Yorkshire, where God's from, John. Heard about it, messaged me and said, <laughs> how do I get this? And that was the spark. Like, I've been looking for this for like a decade, right? I've been looking for what I believe would be the idea that would get us to where we want it to be. And I spotted it. And, and all the 10 years of, of preparation, of failings, and, and when you're in the throes of those failings, and, and when you think of a failure, it's just that it didn't work out as you expected it to. But it's not to say it was a failure. It was a learning. And, you know, Steve Jobs says, I was able to connect the dots of everything that had taken me to that point. And I contacted my program and I says, do you think we could, you know, commercialize this product, but keep the tech so simple? Like, just keep it really simple. And he said, I think we can do it for four grand. I said, who's your programming? Is this a programmer as a friend? Is this a staff member? Like, no, it was an external programmer. I had one in the UK that I'd worked with for 10 years from my marketing company and a guy in Australia that I'd done some bits with as well. So I consulted with them both. Between it, it's going to cost us four grand to get a minimal viable product out the door and up and running. Um, I got the commitment from three accountancy firms to pay some money towards that. So I had all the cash. I was still doing my consultancy job on the side. So I wasn't all in, all in, all in on it. I built the product and to your book title, which I had read your book years previously, when I set that company up, it was built to sell from day one. So many questions about that. I'd love to go back to in what ways it was built to sell. Before we go there though, with regards to the relationship you had with the UK and Australian programmers, did you describe who would own the IP at that stage? And did you get that in writing? Like, what was the, what was that like? Um, let me just go back and just think, I actually offered one of the developers a percentage of the business and to pay them. Like, I'll give you a percentage of this. And, he, and he, to his credit, he has loads of people offering him that and, and very few things turn out. He says, no, just pay me and pay. And I've always looked after my, the guys that I work with. Like, I pay them their full rate, never question anything. And within five days of invoice, they will be paid. Like, because I want them responding to me fast, so I should respond to their uh, payment request fast, right? So I had a really good relationship with them. Um, I don't think I actually did get anything in place. I think I wrongly assumed that because I'd commissioned the project that I therefore owned the IP and within a short time after that realized I didn't and so got uh, formal IP contracts in place. And so any external uh, developer that we work with signed all the IP over to us. Um, 
there are some quirks in the UK. It's like with, with, with if you employ people in the UK, then it's assumed that all the IP is owned by the the employee employer. But you do still have to get ideally get that in place as well. But it was after, done after the fact, John. Got it. So you spent four grand to get this very crude minimum viable product built, yes. which allowed to, I'm just in visualizing. So I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with my accountant and it would basically allow the accountant to choose from a set of menu based offerings, productized yeah. offerings yes. that, that they could sell to their customer. Yeah. So you go through, you agree together collaboratively. If you don't, if you get to an amount that you don't want to pay that much, not a problem. What do you want to take out? Like there's no discounting. You're going to pay the full rate. And then once you accept, it produces a proposal, engagement letter, you sign it on the spot, and then it trig- now it triggers off various other things. At the time, it didn't. It just, the process ended there. Beautiful. And so how did you finance the, the beginning? It was this cl- the, the couple clients who agreed to kick in some cash to have it yeah, built? Yeah. So we got, I got in, yeah, so four grand got me out the door. And, and when I say minimal viable product, I mean to the point where I could start selling it. Like sometimes... <laughs> You know, I think people develop something way beyond what it needs to be, but we kept it. We kept the product really tight. There's um, some guys we were following in the states called Thirty Seven Signals. They built base camp. Sure, Jason Fried's guy. Yeah, yeah, great guy, and he's got a book called Getting Real, and he talks about that like like half your scope, half it again. Any feature requests, say no to them. Don't even write them down. Like we, he's that's our bible. Like. Any new member of staff that came on board with GoPosal has to read Getting Real to start with to understand the principles of the book, uh, uh, of what we're doing. So we, we just kept it lean and got to the point where we could start selling this product. Now, we had a fierce competitor that turned out to be a very aggressive competitor that had seven years head start on us and $24 million of investment. I had no investment. I'm a tight Yorkshireman, John. I didn't want any investment. I was determined to build to to challenge the model and you see all these software companies they'll post online just had another round of funding just had another round of funding within month three we were profitable we were profitable ever since then and my goal was to build a profitable business and never never have anyone be you know have to tell anyone tell us what to do music to my ears man yeah just (laughs) old-fashioned make money have money in the bank do what you want to do Love it. So where does it go from there? So you got your, for your, your profitable, uh, tell me where it goes from there. So the accounting industry, somebody rang me, a, a prominent person rang me and said, what the hell are you doing? Like, you've made a real mistake here, James. Like you've picked the worst industry. They don't like anyone from outside of their industry. They will question everything that you do. They will challenge you. Um, you're trying to sell them a sales product. Like that's not anything that they warm to. They, they don't want to sell. Um, I think you've made a real mistake. And I said, look, they're, they're humans with hopes and dreams and fears, and I'm just going to tap into that, and I'm just going to talk to that. And so everything I'd learned up until that point, and this is where everything started to come together. Um, so I used to be a magician, right? That's where I learned how to sell. Walking up to a group of drunk people at a wedding who hate magicians, don't believe in magic, don't want you there, and I had to convince them that magic was real. Like, So I knew how to sell. I'd learned about how to systemize to with um again I went over to the states and worked with a company called Six Division, and and understood systemization so you seal all the cracks so that you 
can allow your t and people think that that if you have really rigid robust systemization with checklists and automation etc that you turn your staff into robots just the opposite of that it makes your staff these creative wonderful people that now don't have all that crap to think about and they can now operate at their best creative selves run experiments drive the business forward be entrepreneurs and and that was what we we, we created um but the, the way i chose to scale in the business was with all the marketing that i'd learned was give everything away share everything so this original accountancy firm that i was work that i'd I'd built the sales system in. I became a 10% shareholder of that business. And in return, I gave him 10% of Go Proposal, right? Now, what that beautifully did was it gave me an accountant on the inside of my business to give me the advice I needed. But it meant that when I gave talks and things, I could say, yeah, so I'm the director of an accounting business and this is what we do in our firm. And, and so Smart. I got some credibility. I wrote a book called Selling to Serve. Now, this isn't... This is the updated version that I updated last year. You can see the thickness of this, John. This is the original version that you can see the difference. In fact, there was a version prior to this that it was so thin, Amazon wouldn't allow me to have any text on the spine, right? I gave, really? <laughs> I gave myself a week to write it, to write the book. But I, I didn't care whether it was good or not. I just wanted something in the space. It happened to be okay. Um, so the book was intentional for you to get in front of accounting firms and accountancy firms that would enable you to sell the software. Correct. So I thought Got it. the only thing I can share is what I know, which is, you know, the, the sales process that, that we've implemented into this firm, how you should sell, you know, everything that we've done, I just gave it all away and mapped it all out. The other thing is that through the, the, the magic again, I set up a product called Magic Dad. You can still find it on YouTube. I, I give it away free now, but I, I wanted to teach dads how to be magic in the eyes of their kids, right? But through that, I had to do hundreds of hours of videos of getting it right. So I thought the only way I can dominate this space in a way that no one can catch me is to just be prolific with video content. I'm going to share everything. I'm going to help as many people as I can. I'm going to produce as much video content as I can. I'm going to do a video a day and it's going to be high quality material and I am not going to try and sell the product. I am just going to try and serve and help this industry. So, you know, when you see like a lot of content, it's kind of fairly flimsy and there's all, they just give enough away to try and sell you into their product. Sure. I was like, yeah. I'm just going to give it, I don't care whether you buy the products or not. I'm just going to help. So we produce the book, produce prolific with video. Con I would hazard, hazard a guess that Go Proposal in the last five years has produced more video content than every other software company in the accounting industry worldwide. Like we and are that's more, competitors like Intuit and yeah, Zero and Microsoft. Stack them all up. They yeah. can't do it. Yeah. They're too big. The, the, the sign-off process that videos have to go through. I had an accountant. So I'm, I'm just going to backtrack one second. We built three components of the product, John. We built the product, the software. We built the education line, which was the book, online academy, and, and content. And we built a community. So I built the community with Facebook. It was the easiest way that I could get out there. And it cr that generated my content for me. So you'd have people asking questions in there. So someone would say, hey, a client just asked me for a discount. What do I say? And I said, give me a minute. I'll answer it. So I answer it. And this was my, one of my best videos I ever did. I literally turned my iPhone on, hooked it. I've got a little lapel mic that I plugged into it. I said, if, I, if someone ever asks you for a discount, this is the only answer you ever need to give. It will stop it in its tracks, and it always works, right? So th 
the response is, can I have a discount? Absolutely not, but don't blame you for asking. That's the end. <laughs> like, you don't need to do anything else, right? So anyway, share that with him in the community because that's serving my clients. Posted it on in uh, LinkedIn with the exact heading above that he just asked me. A client just asked me for a discount. What do I say? And within 24 hours, it had 100,000 views. Like, You're just kidding. give wow. it all away. And by the time anyone realized what we were doing, we were just so far, and, and people are scared to death of doing it. I want to make sure people listening to this heard that correctly, because the example you just gave of a, of a beautiful uh, video response to a very important question is something that you did quickly. However, it probably took you years of videos and thousands upon thousands of hours of content posting every single day to be able to whip that off. I think some people, you know, they'll, they'll throw up something on LinkedIn. It won't get much reaction. They'll go, oh, social media doesn't work. Yeah. And, and yet what, what you did was you became a student of it and a craftsman and an absolutely dedicated machine at creating content, which happens to over time, you, you, you have some winners, right? Yeah. And this was obviously one of your winners. Definitely. And someone wants, there was a time when I didn't do videos. I, and I, I, I do remind people of this moment because people don't, can't believe there was a moment when I didn't do videos because I do in, in my space, like, cause I do so much. Um, and someone, they asked me why I wasn't doing videos and I can't remember what excuse I gave them, some bullshit excuse about I was waiting for my hair to be done or that I was ordered some lights or the, a microphone. And he said, he said to me, why are you being so selfish? I said, what do you mean? He said, there's people out there today that are desperate to hear that thing that you've got to say. Why are you preventing them from hearing it? Get it out there, stop focusing on yourself. And that was the thing that slapped me out of my thinking. And then one thing that Gary Vaynerchuk says is, don't think that you're producing content. Just document your journey. Just document what's happening. And we have so much, everybody has so much fantastic content sat in your inbox, on phone calls where you, you've helped a client. And so everything that we did from that point was just, let's just serve our clients. Let's just help them to overcome the challenges they're facing. And every time we do it, if we can, we record the content with their permission. If, we're, if they're involved in the conversation, for example, but normally I don't need to do that we then would just share the content and, and don't stress it. Some will land, some won't. Some will annoy some people, some won't. But over time, they can't ignore you. And I think it was about year three where I felt things tipped, where I think people thought, I don't think he's giving in. I don't think this <laughs> stops. <laughs> like, I just wore them down, John. That was like my, that was my tactic. <laughs> It is like pushing a boulder uphill though, right? Yeah. Like it, 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 it is very slow in the beginning and then it does tend to create a bit of momentum. So, so orient me in the, in the time frame. So you started Go Proposal in 2016. So we're talking kind of 2019, 2020 timeframe. Yes. So, but, but this was, you know, we were growing with video from day one. Like it was the way we, we got it out the door. And even like I'd go Got to it. events and I managed to get speaking gigs. The, the book landed me speaking gigs at events. We'd go to speaking, go to events. We'd film the event. We then use that and dissect that. And then that would be shared over social media for, you know, months to come. Um, but like I would go to big events, buy into it, buy zero. And I would do like a roundup summary video. And one thing that people neglect is speed. They don't see the importance of speed. They think that everything has to be a tremendous quality, right? 
But I would much prefer to get something out the door at 80% today than 95% in three weeks' time, right? So I would go to these events and I would go around and film the stands and I'd, I'd film people talking and I'd do a summary at the end. So the, the show would close at 4 o'clock, 5 p.m. And my rule was they people had to be watching that video whilst they were on the train on the way home. So within two <laughs> hours, or an hour, two hours of the event closing, I had to have the video launched. It'd be another month before the organizers of the show would get their beautiful production out, but no one sure. cared because they'd seen the summary video and it was good enough. And and what's this happening to, what's happening at this point to Go Proposals Revenue? So you're, you're, you've written the book, you're speaking, you're, you're documenting your journey on video. Like how is that translating into number of subscribers? Like where are you at sure. in this journey revenue-wise? So let me just fill in an important part here, John. So we built this to sell from day one. When I designed the logo for Go Proposal, before we'd, I'd even announced that Go Proposal was the company name. I wrote underneath it um, a zero product, a sage product, an Intuit product. Like I believed that it was going to be one of these companies that was going to buy this. I think there may be a couple of others as well. But I wanted to manifest like this is why we're doing this. And I wanted to see that from day one as why we're doing it. My wife, we went to a financial planner and we planned out like how much money do we need to live till the end of our days and to be able to put deposits down on houses for our, for our kids, pay for them through university, pay for their weddings, et cetera, and live a good life, nice house, holiday home, et cetera, right? So we did that financial planning exercise and got to a number. Like, and What the, was your number? The number was 5 million. Got it, pounds. 5 million pounds. So okay. if we get to 5 million pounds, it's game on. Like great life, we, we never have to work again. Um, and then also we set some milestones along the way because my wife had a very difficult job as a secure psychiatric nurse. You're like, how much do we need to earn to get you out of that job so you can spend more time with the kids, do what you want to do, et cetera, M move house close to the kids' school. So we, d we did this exercise and set some very key events for us that made a difference in our life, that showed up in our home. Like, when can we go to Lapland with the kids for Christmas? Like, stuff that actually makes a difference. I want to pick the kids up and take them to and from school every day. These are important things to me. When can those things start to happen? So we, we got to that agreement from on day one, which then meant that the financial planning and all of the cash flow forecasting and everything that we had to do was really straightforward because we were trying to take it to this point that within three to five years, we were going to get to a position where we could hopefully realize that sum and if not we keep going right so every month we had a, a monthly management account but i a monthly management report sorry but i and in that report it it would remind us of why we're doing this like what's the big goal but i also wanted something called the stakeholders report which was the same set of management accounts that i could give to all of my staff so they could see that we were on track any member of staff that joined the business, they were told you are joining a business that is going to be sold and you will have a great story at the end of this process as well. Like, and you will be looked after. So they, they all knew what they were getting into. And Did you give them options or tell them how they would benefit from the sale? No, there was no, op there was no options. Um, they were just told that, they were told at a very basic level they would have a great story and they would be valuable people in the world if they could help to build and scale a business that then got acquired, right? Um, 
I just then happened to look after them in, or we, and we came to a great deal with, with Sage and we were able to look after them between us. It was it, be, the most heartwarming part of the entire process. Absolutely beautiful. Um, but my wife got this stakeholder report every month as well. So she knew that we were on track to achieving what we set out to achieve. We joined bank accounts, personal bank accounts at home. We had a joint account. We had personal bank accounts. We had spaces and money saved to one side. We had so much visibility personally around our finances. So my wife was now able to make decisions about, you know, Christmas and holidays and stuff without having to come to me. And she knew that we were on track. All the failings I'd made in the previous business, I needed to get this right at home between us first. I needed to be on the same page. So how did you figure out how big Go Proposal needed to be in order to generate a five million pound windfall? Like, did you have an estimate in terms of it needs to be X in terms of revenue or Y in terms of profit? Like, did you did you back into it that way, or how did you fig- how did you know you were on track to this to this uh, uh, the, to this exit? So, I think although it was built to sell, I will also just clarify that. I believed in building an, not an exit strategy, but an option strategy. So I wanted as, so eggs, and although it was built to sell, an egg selling was one of the options. Other options were also that we're going to scale it, franchise it into other uh, markets, like back out of it completely. And by the time I got to sell it as well, and this is an important part of the story, it was running entirely without me. So like I could just let it run and we could have an, a nice life as well. So exiting was was one of the options for us, which meant that when we had, when we came to do the exit, there was no major pressure. It was just going to be a great outcome if we if we could achieve it, you know. Um, so the, the the thing that was I think was actually more important than that was us achieving a personal income each month that allowed us to start to live the life that we wanted. I didn't want this fictional thing in the future that we were wholly dependent on. You know, I wanted to start realizing this now. Otherwise, what's the point of us doing it? So interesting. So, so because a lot of software people, I mean, you hear these these sort of legends of you know they 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 have a five hundred square foot office and they put twelve people in a room and they eat craft dinner and and soda crackers for a year and 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 they have an exit. But you were more focused on we need to have a certain amount of personal income every single month to ultimately accumulate the, the, the net worth that you would, that you would feel free. Yeah, just to enjoy life now, really, John, you know, it was really important to us. We've got three children, two of them are, are young. So Leo and Scarlett are 10 and 11 now. So they'd have been five and six at the time. And you're not getting those years back. Like, so whatever we scale and do with the business, there's no way I'm missing sports day. I'm going to take them to and from school at least three days a week. Like I'm not missing anything. And, you know, people said to me afterwards, like, couldn't you have scaled it bigger? Couldn't you have done more? Yeah, probably. But at a cost, there would have been a cost to that. And you, there's a cost to everything, and you're always balancing this up. And, you know, I was always mindful that I could go again or I could do something when once the kids are, you know, at college or whatever. But I didn't want this to be crazy. I wanted to enjoy this. I wanted us to have a nice life because you're not getting these years back, right? Sure, sure. You know, and I just want to make sure I'm I'm clear in my own mind. So you sit down with a financial planner and you do all the kind of sums to figure out, okay, if, if we can get this 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 amount of wealth built up, we can 
do everything we've ever wanted. We can do the deposit for the kids and the colleges and the university, whatever. And, and that number was 5 million pounds. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand though, draw a line to me as to how you knew you were tracking to that number. Was it, was sure. it you know, you were taking out a certain amount of money every month out of the company or like, how did you know you're on track for that? Yeah, so I guess we didn't know 100%. We, we made some very conservative estimates. We had some people around us, and we estimated that if we could get a four times multiple of revenue, then that would get us towards five, a five million pound figure. And we Got knew it. that that Got would it. be at some point in the future. But as we were doing our cash flow forecast each year, I remember, I can't remember when it was in year two or whenever it was, and I remember I sat down to do the plan for the year. And Paul said to me, who is the, my partner, he had, he had 10% of the business. He said, how many clients do we want by the end of the year? So we know we're trying to, we, we want consistent growth throughout the entire business. How many clients do we want at the end of the year? And I said, a thousand. And he said, why a thousand? I said, well, it's a thousand, isn't it? thousand, yeah, let's get it. He said, it doesn't mean anything. He said, what's going to show up in your life? What's going to make a difference in your life? And it was, well, if Becky doesn't have to work there anymore and come home having been attacked by a, an inmate at work, if I can pick the kids up to from school, if we can live in this house near the kids' school, if Becky can get this car, like they're the things, if we can go on this, this many holidays a year, that would make a difference. Okay, how much money do we need for that? How much monthly income do we need? Right, well, in order to get there, you need 427 clients. So get your ego out of the way ditch this thousand pound rubbish and let's aim for something that's going to show up in your life. You know, and at the end of the day, whatever we think about our business, the only thing that's unique about our business, truly unique about our business is it's for me, it's the only business in the world that's designed to give me the life that I want. And that's what this business was built for that. We can all have these reasons why we want to impact climate change. We want to boost the economy. We want to beautiful. I love it. I wanted to create generational wealth for my family. I want it to be create options and freedoms for us. I want us to have time together, create rich experiences for ourselves. This business was built for that for, for us, for, first and foremost. Love it. And again, so if I'm unpacking the numbers roughly, you figured, you know, you could conservatively get four times revenue for a software company. So you needed it to be north of a million. Yeah. Maybe a million, two, million, three, million, four. Yeah, yeah times the four, gets you to the five. So so when you're doing the the report, the stakeholder report in 2017 and 2018 and 2019, you're tracking yeah. to that million pound yeah. revenue turnover. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and you know that, that that's gonna get you there. That's it, and this is the thing, right? You see, you see all these software companies, and I don't think there's enough of these stories being told, John, right? You, you get these stories of, you know, Zuckerberg and in the UK, Richard <laughs> Branson or whatever, billion pound companies, billion pound software companies, you're not going to do it. Like I said to myself, you're not going to do this. That, that, does, that will not happen, right? They're so rare. Don't even think about it. But you know what? You can build a business that turns over a million pound that you could maybe sell for four or five million pound that will completely transform your life. And th- it's real and it's achievable. And I've got people around me who are doing similar things in, in different spaces, John, but just really good people um, and you don't hear about them. 
No one's right. They're not writing Dude, books. I think we're brothers from another mother. I really do. You know, they're not on shows. They're not. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not you're not being heard. They're not being heard about. But I see these people creating great opportunities for their kids, living good lives, being present, and it's possible. It's within reach. Yeah, no, I, uh, you and I sing from the same hymn book for sure. Um, let's get into a little bit more of what you did to build this to sell. So I've heard a few things, and let me just reiterate what I've heard because I think they're all brilliant strategies. First of all, you envisioned from the very early days who the acquirer was, zero into it, Sage. You even put it on in your own mind, the visualization of Go Proposal brought to you by, which is great. You had the vision of options, not necessarily wanting to sell, but having lots of options on the table so they could thrive without you etc. Um, what else did you do that was set up in a built to sell kind of way? Sure. So we implemented great values, which I think was very important from day one. So strong culture and strong core values. And um, we recruited around those, John. So if you wanted to work for GoPosal, we didn't want to see a CV or anything. You had to send a video in as to how you'd achieve one of these values in your life or in your work before. And we were very strong on them. And when people talk about values, they tend to talk about the cool things like the table football in the whatever kitchen and, you know, pizza nights and stuff like that. But with values, what people don't talk about is having difficult conversations with members of staff and saying what will happen if people don't live up to these values. Like, and it's those, we were prepared to have hard conversations and, and had a, a culture of radical candor and giving candid feedback to people with love delivering it with love but firm like i speak to businesses now and i'm like they'll have a member of staff and they're repeatedly going against values and stuff and i say this is the conversation you need to have with that or i'll say it to my team this is the conversation you need to have with them and you need to explain to them that if they've not done this by this day the next time you're going to sit down with them you're going to sack them and they come out of the meeting and i say did you tell them you were going to sack them and they're like no i didn't i didn't dare say that i'm like you're not being fair to them if you do not, because you will be sitting down and sacking, sacking them, right? And So you may as well be transparent. Yeah, let's just be really honest with each other. So we, we had a, a brilliant culture and we fiercely defended it with, with every member of staff that came in. And, you know, it, it served us so well now with the acquisition, on the other side of the acquisition. In fact, my operations director said to me last week, I am so glad we can kind of defended that culture. Let's talk about that in a moment. One thing that's curious to me, though, is, is we talked about how you grew the business. You wrote the book. You spoke. Uh, you did all the video content. You, you posted it all the social religiously daily. One of the things that strikes me is that that is creating a James Ashford dependency problem. Did you think about the dependency your company had on you being the showman, the you know the magician, the guy spinning all the plates, the, the and and how did you mitigate against that? It's a great question, and it's a double-edged sword. So there's a book behind me somewhere called "Key Person of Influence" by Daniel Priestley, and he yeah. talks about this, which is a, it's a great way to scale your brand. Like you know, have a front have a front person to the business, write the book produce the video content, speak on stage, et cetera. And it's a cost-effective way. You know, it, it connects people to your brand. You can e easily scale it up. But then the other side of that is, well, then if you want to sell it, so how do you get out of it? So then we, I had to contact Daniel and say, right, I've got your first part of the book. I need to know how we do the next part now. <laughs> and so what we started to do was two things, really. We started to create assets. 
So we, we, we turned all of the content into assets. So the book became an asset of the business, but then also we've got the audio version of the book. I've got the film of the book. I've got the academy version of the book that's produced hundreds of hours of social videos, of, of, of posts that the company can dine out on for years, right? When I sold GoProposal, I sold the book with it. I sold all of the social media, all of the videos. They became hugely valuable assets. And it was, you do need me, but how can we digitize me effectively? Then what we started to do, to what, another thing that we've, we've done from day one as well, I will make a note of this, you may want to make a note of this, is we had playbooks for everything. So all of my thinking and all of my standards were entrenched in everybody's playbooks because, you know, I'm a believer that it's your standards that are controlling your results. And people would say to me, yeah, but as you scale, your standards will slip. And I'd be like, yeah, if you let them, I'm not letting them. So again, we fiercely defended our standards and, and they were entrenched. So a lot of my thinking, we, we turned into digital assets within, within the business. As we got close towards the sale, and this, this, this was already planned in prior to the sale anyway, that year was called Kill the King. It was how do we now start removing me? So everything that we'd learned about how we build me as a personal brand, we started to get the team to do it. So the next logical person was the operations director, who's Heather. So Heather also happens to be my niece, but she didn't get the role because she's my family. She got the role because she's a brilliant human being. Now, she now has been doing webinars today. She sent me an email from a feedback of something she's done a webinar about, and it's incredible, right? So my belief is, it is, you do need one personal brand, I think, to get it going. But then how do you have an army of personal brands? Now we've sold to Sage. I, I've kind of been saying this to Sage. I said, look, you've got 13,000 staff. Me and Heather have done two posts in the last week, me and Heather alone, that has had more views and more engagement than all 13,000 <laughs> staff at Sage for the last year, right? Two <laughs> posts in one week, right? Heather did a post. Yeah got four, th three and a half million views on TikTok. It popped off, right? I did a post, it went crazy, right? Because of everything that we've learned. And so you're right, it's a great way to scale, but then you need an exit strategy to their personal brand. And I think we've actually done it quite well. I love the kill the king, the year of killing the king. It sounds, uh, it sounds perfect and uh, a great segue for us to get into the sale itself. So what triggered you to want to sell? Was there an event or like what, what triggered? Yeah. So, um, what happened was we tipped over a million pound revenue, which I think was a key milestone because that's the point that my understanding is that when business is looking at you, you think, well, if you can get to a million pounds, you've got to have some things right. Like you need certain things in place to achieve that. It's a good indicator that there's some good foundations there. Uh, we were doing a partnership with a large company and um, putting a, a deal together where they wanted to sell our product for us. And uh, they came back with some commercials for that deal. And I said, well, I, I said some very choice words to them. I said, you have not created a win-win here. You've created a massive win for you and a massive loss for us. And they said, do you want to negotiate? I said, no, you can do like, we're done. Like my values will not, I'm not going to negotiate now. You had your chance. And they said, would you consider us buying you then instead? And I said, well, that's a different conversation. And if the money's in the right ballpark, then 
Yeah, and I remember what the guy said to me at the time. He says, he says, well, look, we all know how this works. How much will your wife accept? That's what his words were to me. And what was your reaction to that? Well, I just kept quiet. And because the, the, the truth was I knew what my, how much my wife would accept. I, I knew the exact amount, but I just, I kept quiet to that one. Um, and we started a conversation and we started some discussions. This was in the, uh, around October, November uh, of, what year, in 22, 2020? Um, okay. And, um, and then another company came to talk to us and then another one did within de in December. So within two months, I had three companies come to us and start talking and get me all excited. And in the UK, we have right move, which is what you use to buy property on, right? So we're kind of not trying to tempt fate, but you can't help but look on right move and think, whoa, what could we buy for this much in the area, right? And they, no, 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 stop, stop looking on right move. And then you you're specking up a Porsche on the Porsche. Stop, stop specking Porsches, right? So you, you can't help but get carried away. And, you, and they know this as well. So they're kind of, you know, getting you fired up. And it all fizzled. To, let me just stop you there, James. The three companies, were they all accounting firm, like software owners? They, they all own software and accounting? Two, three, yes. Yeah, all, all within the accounting space. One, two, two strict software companies. One, uh, uh, software was part of their portfolio. It's interesting that they would all like you'd have no interest from 2016 to 2020, and then you had three in the space of two months. Were you able? Were you ever able to 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 kind of draw that back to a post you made, a conference you attended, something that would have gotten you on the radar of three of these guys in the space of two months? You know, this comes back to you know social media. Like people say. People always want to know what the ROI is of, well, what's the ROI of that post? I'm like, you don't know. Like, you've no idea what the ROI of any post is. Like, just keep sharing what you're doing. You could do a post and it could be to attract a, me a new member of staff. It could be a post to attract an acquirer. Like, you just want- So do you think it was a post that they must have seen? I don't think it was one post. I think it was a constant window into our world. We've given up, we've provided a window into GoPuzzle's world. We're constantly sharing milestones, new team members, new innovations. Um, you know, hitting a milestone of a number of clients. So let me just, it's a good question, John. I've not actually reflected on it before. So I, I, I'm not, it, it could have been some post that had hinted towards something. Um, 2020, you know, I think the end of the, of you know, we, we had Corona hit, didn't we, that year. And I think that really shaped up the software space quite a lot. And I think people then started to look to buy, you know, lots of software companies were starting to buy. I think that the events in the world, I think perhaps maybe affected things more than what we were doing. And, and maybe there's an element of coincidence as well. Got it. That's super helpful. What was your reaction? I know you didn't actually say anything, but I'd be curious to know what thoughts went through your mind when the acquirer said, quote, we all know that how this works, what will your wife accept? Just take me through the stream of consciousness inside James's mind when he uttered those words to you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Ashford. Be sure to join us next week for part two, where James gets into the negotiation process that he went through to sell his business again, for a healthy eight figures. So great story and a great ending to the story. Listen for that 
next week. For full show notes to today's episode, including links to everything we talked about, uh, references and decoding some of the language we used, please visit builttosell.com. If you're wondering how to support the show, a review on your favorite podcasting app is always appreciated. You can also hit subscribe when you're there so you never miss an episode. Today's show is actually produced by Colin Morgan, a brand new executive producer here at Built to Sell Radio. You're going to hear more from Colin in the coming weeks. In the meantime, he is managing at Built to Sell on Twitter. And so if you want to reach out to Colin and say hi, be sure to follow at Built to Sell on Twitter. Special thanks also to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio and video engineering. And a special thanks to our entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'm John Orlow. We'll talk to you again next week for the second installment of our interview with James Ashford. 